So welcome to the season finale of uh, Enterprise Tuesday. And a huge warm welcome to all of you uh, who have braved the sunshine and left the 20 degree uh, heat that we have outside to sit in this lecture theater. I think you can give a warm welcome to all of you. Come on. Um, I've been uh, asked to talk to you about um, um, some uh, boring rules. Um, if you have a mobile phone, can you please make sure that it's on silent or on vibrate? We've got a strict rule that if your mobile phone goes off during the session, there's a fine, and we do collect the fine. Okay, so usually it's 50 pounds, but given that uh, Ian is the CEO of a leading bank, we've gone to a thousand pounds, and... Um, <laughs> Uh, exactly, and uh, so it's a thousand pounds, and um, Barclays will match it, and it'll go to a charity of our choice. So um, please make sure your mobile phone doesn't ring. Um, I'm half serious here, but it's it's really important. Uh, secondly, um, we're not expecting any fire um, alarm tonight. So if um, you hear the fire alarm off, please leave the room and congregate in front of the business school on the lawn, where somebody will find you. I hope. Um, I, I've never, I, we've done it before, so there's really no fire alarm tonight. Um, I would like to um, um, give a really a warm welcome to uh, Ian, who's come to talk to us about growth. Um, so I recognize some faces in the audience, and um, most of you are entrepreneurs or run your own businesses. And, um, and I guess what I'm going to tell you that uh, the word that, as an entrepreneur, I've heard most is no. You will empathize with me. So as an entrepreneur, the word that I hear most is, no, I'm not going to give you money. No, I'm not going to buy from you. No, I'm not going to join your team. And about uh, four years ago, I was on the road trying to find a partner for one of our growth programs here at The Judge. And I was going and knocking at the door of uh, a lot of banks, a lot of uh, advisor firms, and trying to partner with them to take our growth program um, national across the UK. And the word that I heard most was no, until I knocked at um, Ian's door. And actually, Ian didn't think that I was completely pathetic, delusional. He actually gave me an hour of his time. And um, he met with us, and um, we had a very interesting conversation about growth and about the challenge of growth. And um, um, he thought about it. And um, we've been running a growth program together for the last two years uh, called the Barclays Scale-Up Program. So there is no better person um, that I know of that can come and talk to you about the road to growth. So please join me in um, welcoming Ian very warmly. Thank you. So if I was to put a uh, sort of a subtitle to this, it would be um, the speed bumps on the road to growth and how to overcome them. Um, because in my job, uh, well, I get to look after a million businesses across the UK. Uh, that's my day job. Uh, Barclays is the largest business bank in England and Wales. I uh, look after about 23, 24% of uh, businesses in the UK. Large and small, charities, social enterprises, shops, up to some pretty complicated businesses. We look after uh, about a quarter of the farms in the UK. Uh, and so, and we're doing that for a long time, doing that for a long time. So we've learned a lot. And what I try to do over the next kind of 20 minutes is just talk about, well, as many examples as I can of where we've seen businesses struggle with growth, really. The speed bumps that they couldn't get over. 
and then describe some of the ways of solving that. And I'm going to talk about it in three kind of concentric rings. First of all, I'm going to talk about the market that you're operating in and how that can impact your growth. Then I'm going to bring it in a little bit and talk about your business. And then I'm going to make it really personal and talk about you as somebody who's running a business. So let's start with the, uh, let's start with the market. Look, you're all very smart people. You live and breathe Moore's Law, right? You're all going, yeah, we know this stuff. Whether you're talking about data or computing power, you get that stuff. Great. Something weird happens when you start your own business. That you forget how fast the world is changing around you. It's just a bit of psychology. Something happens. When you're looking at it theoretically, you get the way the, the, the speed of the world moves. But then suddenly when it's your own business, you become passionate about that and you forget. And you don't realize that the great idea you may have had, actually the reason why it's not growing is you've already been left behind. So the first lesson is the importance of whatever stage you are in starting or scaling up growing a business is keep your head out of that business and look what's going on around you. Let me illustrate that with a, with a real life story. Um, I'm going I'm to take the names out to, uh, to, to protect the innocent. Um, we had a meeting scheduled uh, with a company that uh, provides services to businesses and we thought they might want to partner with us. We really liked them. We'd done our research on them. I'll just call this one Company A. And uh, they'd got a new product, a product that the businesses would like to have. It was very disruptive. They were directly challenging um, the, the existing players in this market. To some extent, they were even challenging the banks. Uh, they'd been around for a couple of years. They had got some traction, and they were just starting to scale up. So we thought we might want to partner with them. So we reached out, and we brought them in and, and had a meeting with them uh, on a Tuesday morning. And we were blown away. It's like, wow, these, these guys are so far ahead of us, right? You know, they've got this, they've got the technology we haven't got, they've got this vision, they've got this whole way, different way of pricing, uh, they just need our distribution, you know, when you've got a million businesses. It's like, but wow, we've, we've got to partner with these guys, we've got to partner with these guys. And then in the afternoon, I had another meeting, kind of the same group of people from my side. And this meeting had been shoved in my diary by my boss who basically had met somebody who knew somebody who had this business and wouldn't it be nice if we talked to them. And being blunt, I had no freaking clue what they were going to do, right? It was just a meeting that was in the diary. So I'd shoehorned a couple of my folks to come along with me. So we go along and we sit down in a meeting room that afternoon. Literally no idea what this business is or what it does, only that they wanted to partner with us. And we'll call this one Company B. Company B said to us, well, this is what we do. Well, like, that's interesting. That's basically the same as Company A that we met this morning. So, um, but it was clear that they had a different sort of view on it. And uh, I said to them, how do you differ from Company A? And they said, we're going to take Company A out. They're so history. They've got the wrong idea, they've got the wrong model, all those things. This, this business viewed Company A as the incumbent. Company A was only just starting to scale up from my point of view. They barely got going. But they didn't know it, that there was a whole raft of businesses starting up, looking at them, saying, we're going to take them out. Okay? So lesson number one, keep your, keep your head out of your business looking at your market. Lesson number two, right, 
You've, you've met a bunch of entrepreneurs, right? They've come and spoken to you, uh, people who've been successful. I'm going to really simplify this, because I reckon if you go and grab a random bunch of entrepreneurs, and you've been successful, and you've brought them out here, you could divide them into two groups. Over here would be the group that basically said, I've got a vision. I've got an absolute vision. And the story of their success was basically ignoring everybody who said their vision wasn't going to work. And they pivoted in how they were going to do it, right? But they kept true to their vision and eventually their vision won through. But then over here, you've got a completely different story. You've got the story of the people who started out to do something and ended up doing something completely different. They didn't just pivot, they turned around and went in a different direction. So over here, for example, you've got Airbnb. Who's going to want to rent out a room in their house? Who's going to want to rent a room in somebody else's house? Right? Nobody said it was going to work. They didn't think it would work. In fact, they had to change the way they did it. I'm sure you all know the story. They started off focusing purely on events. Let's do Airbnb in a city where there's a big event. And then they pivoted it to go, actually, no, let's focus on tourists. And so, on. so they pivoted how they did it. But their vision, you know, despite a whole bunch of naysayers, was there. Think about Deliveroo in the UK. They knew that business model was going to work because it worked in the US. They'd seen it work in the US. They'd used it. They come to the UK, everyone says, well, what are you doing? No fine dining, semi-fine dining restaurants are going to want to have their food delivered on the back of a motorbike. But Will Shue and the guys, they held true to that vision and it came out. But there's loads of examples over here. Let's use the obvious one. It started off as an online bookstore. Its fastest growing business is web services, Amazon. Okay? Or, my or two of my favorite examples. Anyone know what YouTube was when it started out? No? It's a dating site. The, the, the slogan for YouTube originally was tune in and hook up. Now, what they realized was, later they had to pivot, um, completely, because they realized their technology was, was the thing. They were just trying to use it for a completely different purpose. Or my absolute favorite example is Shopify. Uh, anyone know what Shopify is? few of you know. Oh, most of you don't. Okay, so Shopify basically are a software company, huge software company, um, that basically produce the software used by a huge number globally of uh, online stores. Okay, so, you know, if you're, if you're not you know, selling off Amazon and you don't build your own, basically, you know, if you're selling shoes or widgets or anything else online, the odds are that underneath that website is Shopify. Does all your stock control, sends your bills, makes all your payments, all that kind of stuff. So you won't know the answer to this, but what was Shopify before it was an online sales software company? Answer? It was a snowboard store. The entrepreneurs who set up Shopify were actually building an online um, winter sports snowboard store. And they got fed up with the quality of stuff that they could get, uh, the, the software to run the store. So they built their own software and then sold the software or licensed the software for another shop to use and then another shop and then another shop. And before they noticed, they basically weren't a winter sports shop anymore. They were a software company. Okay? Now, here's the point of this lesson. I can't tell you in your business, in your market, with your product or service, which is the right answer. I don't know whether your vision is right and you might have to pivot on how you deliver it, like, like Airbnb, or whether you're going to have to completely change mid-course. All I do know is, don't jump between the two. Okay? You can maybe get away with doing that once. 
but you can't keep jumping between the two. One, it's not good for your own mental health. You don't really know what you're doing. And secondly, it's very hard to invest in you. Imagine the conversation with these folks, right? We've got this vision. We believe people are going to want to rent out their rooms. They're going to rent out their rooms. They're going to rent out their rooms. Okay, now if you believe in that as a bank or as an investor, you, you believe in that vision. You believe in that vision. If they follow up with that conversation by basically saying, oh, by the way, uh, but we're actually not sure it's going to work. And if it doesn't, it's okay because we're actually going to do something else. What are you buying into now? What are you buying into? So be very cautious, be very, very conscious of what mode you are operating in. Are you following a vision and pivoting how you do it, or are you actually changing who you are and what you do? So that's thinking about the market. Now let's bring it home a little bit to the growth, how to drive growth uh, in your business. Okay, let me ask another question. Um, I spent a lot of time out on the road talking to businesses, young and old. What's their number one problem? What's the number one problem for businesses in the UK right now, big or small? Nope. Someone said it. Skills. Skills and staff. Cash flow we're going to come to. Cash flow is why they fall over. Right? So it's a very, very, you're absolutely spot on. But the number one problem for UK businesses right now is access to the skilled workforce they need to grow. Okay? Um, if you don't have that, it's really hard. Okay? You only need two things to, 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 to succeed in business. A really good idea and the resources to deliver it. Okay? If you don't have those staff, you don't have the people around you. And UK business doesn't just have a skills problem, and I'm going to go on to one of my other passions. Uh, it has a diversity problem. And I mean that in the broadest sense. So both in the sense that you would imagine, right, that uh, you know, I can walk onto the shop floor of a business and see it's entirely staffed by blokes in their 50s and the owner, you know, working the machines, and the owner of the place says, you know what, I could grow, I could grow, but I can't find anyone else to operate the machines. And you go, he says, there's just not the skilled labor. He doesn't have a skills problem. He's got a diversity problem. He's only attracting middle-aged blokes to work there. How does he get through that problem? May well also be in business that, you know, you are not reflecting the customers in the people that you're employing. I always say in, in, in the bank, in Barclays, one of the critical things we have to do is reflect the communities that we serve. I have to say, so I meet a lot of fintech businesses, right? You know, new startups bringing new things. You'd be amazed at the number of fintechs staffed by people who shop at Waitrose who think they are building apps to help people on low incomes manage their money. I, I don't know how they know that they're doing it right. So. One of the issues we see with business growing is they don't either, they think they know the solution, they think they know the problem, but they don't actually have the staff in the business who can really understand it. And the second problem is they don't have the staff who can sell it. Now, the more technical, the more technical your idea is, the more your, your product is, um, the harder it can be um, to communicate it. And one of the challenges we see in businesses is, yeah, they got a great idea. Oh, by the way, has anyone been to, no, 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 no,
right? Who's done, who's, who's, has anyone spoken at Pitch of the Palace? Anyone actually pitched, right? Oh, a few of you have been. So Pitch of the Palace um, is just it's a wonderful event just for taking the, the temperature of what's going on in the entrepreneurship world in the UK. I don't know if you'd agree that with Hannah. It's, it, it's great because you basically get subjected to like 50 three-minute pitches, just boom, 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 boom. It's great. It's really good. And, but what you really notice is the ones who can pitch and the ones who can't, right? And it's quite often the case that the more technical the product is, to be honest, communication skills might not be the strong suit. So the key point in the business is, have you got the real diverse skill set in your leadership team of your business to grow it? Which doesn't just mean the technical experts. It means people who, who most importantly, reflect the clients that you're going to be selling to and can help you communicate your products and service to them. Let's actually then zoom in on, on cash flow. Um, the number one cause of businesses failing is they run out of cash. Sounds obvious, right? But that's basically what happens. Sometimes they run out of cash because their idea doesn't work, there aren't any customers. Normally though, they run out of cash because they weren't managing their cash flow properly. So this is like health and safety for a business, okay? Before you start worrying about growth, make sure you've got your cash flow sorted. One of the most scary statistics in banking is uh, how, what's the gap between a, a business asking for money for the first time, so a business that's never borrowed before, what's the gap in time between them picking up the phone for the first time and saying, I think I need to borrow, and them actually you needing the money? Days. Okay, it's normally inside the same working week. Right? On Tuesday, I work out that I can't pay payroll on Friday. Okay? And, and this is one of the things, right? And it comes back to my first point about head in the business. Okay? Certainly startup businesses are so focused on the day-to-day -day running of their business. So focused. Have we achieved what we were supposed to do today? Um, you know, have we, have we prepared for that pitch we're going to do? Or, you know, bluntly, have I got the stock in the shop? Have I cleaned the shelves? Have I tidied up? Have I done the thing? You know, it'd be amazing how little attention businesses pay to their cash flow. Or indeed, to other areas. Uh, you know, there's a lot of businesses started worrying about making tax digital. Do you know what making tax digital is? No? Okay, so making tax digital came into play at the beginning of April. This is new law in the UK that basically requires uh, virtually every uh, VAT registered business to submit their tax returns digitally. Okay? Most businesses seem to start worrying about that kind of when it landed. Okay? It's, been it's been flagged for a year. Okay? I'm not, you know, that's just because they're so busy. So, that, back to that message of head out of your business. But thinking about cash flow, you've got to get that cash flow right, otherwise, otherwise you can't even talk about growth. And let's talk about then about, okay, I now want real investment. I can see my idea is going to work, I've gone as far as, I, I've maxed out my credit cards, you know, I've done enough that, that proves it's going to work, I now need money. So I'm going to talk for two minutes about being investor ready and about being borrowing ready and why those two things are often completely different. So, being investor ready. Okay, hands up, who has, who has pitched for investor money? Must be a few here. Okay, all right, so half a dozen of you. So look, um, maybe in Q&A, share, share your stories, okay? Um, investors buy into your vision, okay? Sometimes 
they're going to be real experts, right? Some of you are deep tech, you know, I've got this fantastic idea that's come out of my microbiology lab, you know, and it's going to change the way we treat this or something. It's very special and someone's going to come along and say, I really understand what you're doing and I'm going to invest in that thing. Okay, great, that's really easy, okay? That's not really a pitch, okay? All you're doing is showing them the scientific paper and they go, I like that idea, here's some money, okay? Most folks don't get that experience. Most folks are dealing with uh, an investor community that basically say, great real life example, okay? Uh, in the UK right now, there are lots of US funds looking to diversify. They're coming to the UK and they're basically coming along and saying, hello Barclays, do you have any people doing uh, retail technology that we could invest in? Okay. Uh, do you have anybody who's, uh, who's doing insurance technology? Um, uh, or, you know, and they're just really interested in stuff that's like a little bit more physical. They're worried that everything they're doing is kind of you know, very deep tech and they want something that's real physical bricks and mortar, uh, real cash. They don't really understand what's going on underneath that. They're looking for themes. Okay? And they're investing in themes. So what, so what does pitching to those people look like? It's about passion. It's about vision. It's about selling them the capability of your management team. About persuading them that either your vision is right or that your ability to pivot is second to none. Okay? And it is about having the skills to do that. And that's maybe something we'll touch on in Q&A again. Because it is so important. I, I did, a, um, did a conference this morning, actually, and we were talking with uh, a whole, you know, about 300 fintechs in the room. And we were talking about, they said, what can we do better to with partner with banks? And we said, go away and get some basically interpersonal skills training. All right? So that you, it wasn't quite that blunt. But anyway, you know, so that you can actually come and explain what your product is and what you do. Okay. But that's really what, what investor presentations are like. It therefore comes as a big shock to even people who have really succeeded in investor presentations when they come along and talk to their bank. Large bank, small bank, new bank, fintech, funding circle, Barclays, it doesn't matter. Okay? And they give what looks like their investor pitch and they wonder why we say no. Okay? Because I'm really sorry, as much as I'd like to tell you that we basically lend to a vision, uh, there are lending regulations. There are things that kick in about what we should do. And strange as it may seem, one of the key requirements that I have before I lend you money is demonstrating that I'm confident you can pay it back. Okay, okay. That generally seems to come as a surprise to some folks sometimes, okay? You actually need to be able to demonstrate that you have a cash flow, come back to the important word, cash flow, that you have a cash flow that demonstrates you can pay it back. Now, going back a few years, you know, that was really kind of pretty mechanical. Have I seen you make a surplus for six months of X? Or in which case, fine, you can then repay your, uh, your loan out of, out of X. We'll assume you're going to do that for the next six months. We're getting a bit better at it. Um, you know, we are using, so for example, uh, we're getting smarter at lending against other assets, against invoices. Um, we are exploring, if we can, find ways of you know, lending against IP for example. So you could have a pre-profit business. wasn't actually generating any profits with which to pay the loan, but actually if we can secure it against IP and we can think about, these are all things we're working on, okay? But frankly, right now, you kind of need to be able to demonstrate affordability. You really do, 
Okay, so getting that cash flow up and running for the bank, which is why quite often one of the most important things I can sometimes do with a business is say no and say you're not ready to borrow yet. You need to go and find investors, not a banking partner. Okay, it's investors who are needed who will commit to you and grow, help you grow your business to the point where then you actually do become lending ready. And then we get into the challenge of scale-up. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm not sure how Nadia knows this story. Um, it was a, a client experience I had that actually was what made me want to find... So I was looking for a partner to run a scale-up program at the same time as Nadia was looking for a partner. And uh, this was the client visit. So it was down in the southwest, it was down in Exeter. And uh, the business had... Um, uh, they, they, were, they were combined, uh, without again going to try and explain what they did, but basically the result was they were a combined kind of technology company plus call centre. Uh, with the technology group of people being five or six people, and the call centre was going to expand if they, if they did really well. Okay? Um, the folks behind it had a bit of money. And so they knew they were maybe, maybe we're going to have to uh, accommodate, you know, 40 people if they expanded. So they came up with this great idea and they, they heard about a building that was available and they bought the building. And the, they only would ever need the top floor. So they sublet the bottom floor on a long-term lease. Um, and they took the top floor. And within a year, they were doing brilliantly, uh, really taking off. And that was the point where I went to see them. Strangely enough, the boss is visiting. They take me to go and see a client who loves us and is growing fast. Right? I never get to go and see the, 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 the stroppy clients, strangely enough. So I go and see these folks, and we have a lovely meeting. And I said to them, OK, what's the lesson that you wish you had learned? What's your problem right now? Forget whether it's a bank problem or not. What's your problem right now? And he said, I wish somebody had told me about toilets. Like, sorry? He said, well, you know, Bob, talking to their Barclays bank, he's really good, but he didn't know about the health and safety regulations about toilets. And Bob's literally shaking his head going, I know I didn't, I'm sorry. It's like, oh, well, wind back, what's the story? So it turns out this building had bathrooms on the ground floor. And when they sublet the ground floor, the lease included the bathrooms. But they didn't worry about that because on the first floor, there was a single bathroom. There was a single toilet. Okay? Go in the door, loo, wash basin. Nobody had told them that when you get beyond a certain number of people, you are required to not just have two toilets, but beyond another. I think after you got beyond 20 people, you actually need male and female toilets. And there was no way of plumbing those in on the top floor. The result was they had a porter cabin loo um, outside. And they wanted to go down and use that. And the alternative was they were going to have to spend tens of thousands of pounds on doing some conversion job uh, on the first floor. And he said, I'm running a, this sort of tech company and call centre thing. I wasn't thinking about health and safety. Nobody told me about that. And that was just one of a number of stories that I heard over the period of a, of a sort of six or, a six to 12 months when I first got this job and I ran around the UK talking to businesses that made me realise, you know, it's funny, you, know, you do, when you genuinely sit down and talk to real businesses out there in the real economy, funding isn't their biggest issue. It's skills and it's regulation, you know, it's GDPR, it's making tax digital, it's all these things.
And so how you scale up your business to true growth. I have a graph that I actually put on screen for the first time this morning um, at an event, and I wasn't sure it was going to land, but it seemed to land, where I basically said, look, at some point, if you draw two lines on a graph, you know, time's running left to right, time and complexity of your business is running left to right, and how much time you focus on things is the vertical axis. And you plot a line on there which is your focus on growth and agility and innovation. Well, that's going to stay high all the time. And then you plot another line on it, which is your focus on regulation, on operations, on health and safety. And the argument there is it starts really low, and then you get to a point, and it goes up, and at some point it overtakes your focus on innovation. Right? Because you just have to look after the bathrooms at some point. Okay? And that's where programs like the Scale-Up program come into play. And it was great when we had, when we had the dinner at the end of the program last time, sitting with a, with a table full of folks and really hearing them say, you know, I've been thinking about HR, I've been thinking about training, I've been thinking about um, uh, you know, the basics of my business. Okay, let's finish off by bringing it down to you and how you individual as a, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, what are, the, what, are your, what are the barriers that you generate that will stop your own business growing? So I'm going to start with a bit of a downer um, because I'm going to say you know, maybe one of the most important things uh, to, to a group of people who are thinking about running a business. Look after yourself. Running a business is an incredibly stressful, time-consuming, all-consuming experience. It doesn't matter whether you're what sector you're in, large or small, yeah, it's tough. It's tough and it's emotional. It takes its toll. Uh, we've recently done a bunch of work on uh, small business loneliness. People who, who work from home, you know, running their business out of their bedroom. Really tough. It's really tough. So look after yourself. Try and get somewhere, all right? with other people. Uh, the, well, quite often I, we have these Eagle Labs. There's a couple in Cambridge, uh, old branch, there used to be old branch uh, buildings that we converted because we didn't know what to do with them. They were on long leases. So we make them as co-working spaces. And we've got them in, in Brighton and Cardiff and Manchester and Sheffield. I go and visit them and you ask businesses in there, why are you here? You know, it's just two of you. Presumably, you could do this from one of your flats. You know, why are you here? And the answer is so that we can meet everybody else, and because it's bloody awful sitting at home all day, all week, right? So look after yourself. Look after your own well-being. You are responsible for that business, and you have to look after yourself first and business second. Secondly, do a personal skills audit. What is it that you are good at that's going to help you grow your business, and what are you not good at? Top tip, get somebody else to tell you that as well, because they might give you a different answer. Uh, short detail for an amusing story. Uh, I do this kind of stuff a lot, uh, always have done in different roles, um, you know, as in I'm here, I'm presenting, we'll do a Q&A, I'm very used to that. But I've always been a bit of the kind of uh, uh, the person behind the scenes. I, was a, I spent a lot of my banking career as a COO, right, chief operating officer, not, not the person in charge. So when I got the CEO job, um, they said, right, Ian, well, you're probably now going to have to front the business, so you need to go and do media training. It's like, really? Come on, it's me. You've seen me speak. You know, what's going to be the problem? How hard can it be? 
So, but it turns out that at Barclays, it's, it's basically the law. You have to get media certified, and you can in order to actually you know, do any kind of media. So, so I merrily, sort of, not merrily actually, I grumpily trotted off to go and spend three hours doing media training. So, so I go up to, the, to this conference room, and they've, they've, they've turned it into like a, a mini radio suite. And there's this guy there who's a journalist and a trainer. Okay, so he's going to train me, and he says, right, Ian, so I'd been given this brief, and it was about business lending, and, and my job was to, to do a two, he was going to interview me, uh, pretending to be, you know, Radio 4 type thing, he was going to interview me on business lending, and I had this brief, and there was the five points I had to get across, and all the rest of it, so I'd done all my, done my revision, I knew this stuff backwards, no problem at all, so the guy says, uh, right, Ian, so, um, let's start then, Ian, couldn't the bank lend more to businesses if you simply paid less bonuses? Oh, so it's interesting you should say that, John, because actually, if you look back at the financial crisis, we have been paying a lot less bonuses, and that's what's... Oh, so you've been paying less bonuses uh, since the financial crisis. Yeah, yeah. Why, uh, why have you been paying less? To cut a long story short, after three minutes, I'd answered five questions on bonuses and not said a damn thing about business lending. Okay? Because I didn't know, I had not... The big difference between doing media and doing this is this... I'm vaguely in control, okay? Even during the Q&A, if I don't like your question, I'm gonna go, that's a dumb question, can we move on? Okay, because I can get away with that, because you can't do that on the Today program, it doesn't work, all right? So I didn't realize until I got trained that the media was completely different from any other form of kind of presentational interaction. I simply had never done it. I'd never done it. So it was a, it was a real kind of, and I tell that story all the time to my leadership team just to remind them, you know, they say, look, never be so arrogant as to think you don't know stuff, or to think you know it, you don't need to get trained. So do a skills audit, get trained. If you're not good at something, Thing, bring somebody into your management team who is. Somebody who is. One of my favorite clients uh, that I met at Barclays um, is an um, amazing woman, uh, runs this uh, very, very entrepreneurial business and does incredibly, incredible things that just blow my mind that she does. You know, she flies to China and cold calls factories and say, can you make this? You know, and they say, no, 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 you need to go to the factory over there. Okay, and then she goes with an interpreter to another factory. Just extraordinary. And this business is scaling up massively. And uh, I went to spend the day with them. Uh, just to, you know, literally spent two hours with the marketing department, two hours with the customer services department, and I learned from them, and I tried to kind of go, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, and uh, we're having a coffee at the end of the day, and, uh, and uh, she said, um, Ian, she said, I could, there's one thing I do with your help on. And they employ about sort of um, probably 80, 80 to 100 people across a couple of sites. Um, but they're quite close together. She said, there's all these rumours going around all the time. Everyone thinks we're in trouble. She said, and, um, he said, and then people don't kind of understand what we're trying to do and all those stuff. I said, oh, okay. Do you like, um, do you like send an email around to everybody telling them what's going on? No, she said, most people don't have email. Okay, all right. Do you do like a huddle? Do you like bring everyone together on a, you know, on a Friday morning and give them an update? No, don't do that. Why well, I wouldn't do that. Okay, oh, well, do you do something like, um, I don't know, twice a year? Just have like a, everyone come together? Well, why would I do that? I, I mean, honestly, I was in awe of, the, of, of this, this entrepreneur, but she was completely blind to any, and by the way, really interpersonal, very, you know, very gregarious, extrovert character, totally blind to the basic concepts of leadership. Literally did not see them, okay? And nobody had told her. Now, of course, she's, she's right, I've been trying desperately to get her onto the scale-up program, by the way. Um, but that's the thing. So, 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 and she didn't have anybody else in her team who was supporting her. So... 
Think about, get that audit on what you're good at, what you're not good at, and compliment your team. And, and, and it could be a real ego test, right? Okay, maybe someone else has to lead your pitches because they're better at pitching your business than you are. That's a bit weird, okay? But it might be true. And then finally, um, and this is certainly something that I've taken to heart a lot, um, a personal board of advisors. Bluntly, this is a life thing, not just a business thing, okay? We all do it informally. You will, you will have friends that you'll ask about things. There'll, there'll be friends that you talk to about, your, about relationships, that you, but you wouldn't talk to other people about that, and then friends you would talk to about you know, work stuff or academic stuff that you wouldn't talk to about other people. You know, kind of carry that forward into your business. Have a group of folks that you talk to about your business that are not invested in it, that are not working in it, and kind of formalize it. So you say to them, look, you know, uh, so I'll give you something that I do, for example. Um, before I went into banking, I spent 12 years in the military. I then worked for uh, JP Morgan, an American investment bank, for eight years. That's a pretty kind of monoline culture, right? Lots of white, loud, straight, middle-aged blokes. And so I realized when I got to Barclays that, that I just wasn't used to working in that culture. And so one of the things I've always had, still have, uh, is I find... Uh, a couple of women who see me in action. Doesn't matter what level they are, they just have to be people who actually see me do stuff, and they are absolutely explicitly empowered. You know, in fact, they know they get into trouble if they don't, to come up to me afterwards and say, it would have been better if you had. Okay? So, think about who that should be for you. Try and make it someone as different as possible from you, who will bring new perspectives to you and your business. So look, I'm going to wrap up now and we'll go to questions. I'm very conscious that in a, in a presentation on growth, other than a little bit about talking about being investment ready versus being lending ready, I've hardly talked numbers. Because in my experience about helping businesses grow, it's very rarely about the numbers. It's very rarely about, you know, unless they're in real trouble, it's about cash flow, right? But when it comes to growing, it's not about that. It's about ambition, it's about confidence, it's about having the skills, being willing to pivot at the right time and being willing to hold your nerve at the other time. But the one thing I will tell you as a, as a group of people interested in looking at entrepreneurship, it's no question to me, it's the best job in the world, being an entrepreneur, all right? You know what, I can do a good job, I can help a million businesses, uh, I ain't going to change the world. You got a good idea? You make it happen? You'll change the world. Good luck. Thank you. I'm not sure this, this, this is now working. Before we open the questions to the floor, um, I'd like to um, ask you a couple questions, if I may. But I'll let you pour some water no, and, go for uh, it. Go on. and, and um, catch up. So um, you talked about the speed bumps that uh, businesses have to go through. Um, and you seem to um, make the point that all businesses go through uh, speed bumps. Are they the same speed bumps? Are they industry-specific or um, stage-specific? Um, I think there is, there is definitely the point, the, the first speed bump is, look, even, even in, a, in, a, in, a, in an era of businesses that can be built on the cloud, 
you know, from your bedroom, sooner or later, the first speed bump is, I need some money. Um, now, um, it's interesting as I travel around the UK, um, so if I take that particular point in time, I need some money, I need some investor money, that is geography-based. It's not about sector, it's about where you are. If you're in London, if you're in Cambridge, you're good. Okay? I mean, come on, you're sitting here in Cambridge with, with the most advanced network um, you know, of angel investors linked into everything that's going on in the university. You know, honestly, if you don't recognize how unique that is, you, you really should. As I said, I was down in the southwest, I was up in Leicester recently. You go, you go, you travel around the UK and everyone says the number one problem that we have to drive early stage growth is we haven't yet got a network of angel investors here ready to invest. And of course, if you are one of these, you know, West Coast VC companies coming into, into the UK looking for businesses to invest, where do you go? You go to London, then you go to Cambridge, and then you might go to Oxford, and then you stop. Right? So, so that is a geographic base. It's not by industry. It's a, that's a geographic um, speed bump. Um, then I think the, the, the big question is, um, who are you selling to? Uh, are you scaling up by getting more consumers? Right? And it's a, it's a very lazy uh, kind of simplification, but to my mind, businesses just fall into two categories. You're either you know, B2C or B2B. And that point becomes very interesting, right? So if you're, if you're a B2C business, you scale up by getting more consumers on your platform. And if you're not doing that, that's a proper bump. You know, can you pivot? Can you understand why? Because if you're just sitting there ticking over, you know, adding 100 users a week, you ain't going anywhere. And, and, and your speed bump there is, you know, that's an inflection point, perhaps more than a speed bump. But are you now going to change? Are you now going to change? If you're B2B, it tends to be slower. And then your speed bump is, can I get into the right businesses? So I remember, for example, actually in Cambridge, um, one of the businesses in our, in our Eagle Lab had a great product, but their speed bump was um, getting into the very large corporates who would be interested in their product. Because it was quite a niche thing um, that would be of interest to you know, a very specific group of very large global businesses. <coughs> Um, and the most important thing we could do with them was actually get them into those businesses to start having the conversation. So that's the next big speed bump, I think. But, but I think the first, by far the most telling one is that early one of getting that angel investment. Thank you. So um, I uh, read up to get ready for this session and read up um, a lot about you and uh, I stalked you. And um, um, so, so you're passionate about leadership and you're also passionate about diversity issues. Um, it comes back in all of the interviews and ev all of your blogs. Um, could you talk us, uh, so diversity for me is not just gender. Yeah. And uh, for, from everything I read, um, it's not for you as well. Could you tell us a little bit more and specifically why it's so important in the micro uh, organism that a startup or an SME may be? So um, to make it, to make it real, um, I'll tell you my, my diversity story. So, uh, you know, I spent time, uh, as I said, in the military, uh, white, straight, Christian male environment for 12 years. So I then moved to JP Morgan, which from a culture of loud blokes wasn't that different. But something happened after I'd been there about six months. Uh, a guy from my team uh, came in. I, I hasten to add for all those of you who are very young in here and will struggle to understand how this could possibly be the case. Uh, this was in 2000. And um, a guy came into my office and said, um, uh, who I'd been working with, and you know, I've known him very well for a couple of months. He said, Ian, I'd like your support with something. 
I certainly don't. Uh, how can I help you? Because I, frankly, if there's one thing I brought from the military, I thought I'm a, I'm a good leader. The army teaches you to lead. And actually, it teaches you to lead in a way that is very transferable. It's not all just shouty. You know, it is real, genuine. I need to understand people and support them, leadership. And um, so Dan sits down and, and he said, uh, I'd like your support, Ian, at coming out at work. I said, Dan, you know, I'll support you, you know, in whatever I can or however I can, but I have no idea what you're talking about. I didn't know. I literally did not know what those words meant. And I suddenly realised, you know, I had a problem, that my leadership was entirely kind of um, based around... It was maybe very diverse in terms of style, more diverse than you might think, but it was actually based on a single culture, and that I needed to learn. And I was very lucky because he, and he's still a good friend, you know, he, he, he taught me. He said, this is what the words mean, da 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 And so, uh, and then I realised that, you know, I needed to teach myself lots of other things. And so I've literally spent the last, certainly the last uh, eight years, or ten years now at Barclays, um, where Barclays, bluntly, is incredibly passionate on diversity. And I've, I've been trained, you know, and spent time literally learning about this stuff. So I actually chair the Diversity Council for Barclays in the UK, which, again, as a middle-aged white straight bloke, seems a bit weird. But actually, frankly, as I did a couple of weeks ago, the most important audience I have to speak to is the unbelievers. And the unbelievers tend to be middle-aged white straight blokes. And so them hearing it from me sometimes lands. Okay? Not always, not kidding myself, that's always going to work. But that's why I've got passion about it. Um, and look, one is the skill, I won't rehash it. The first thing is skills. I mean, it is absolutely skills, for, first of all. Secondly, um, and this is a bit more of a big business story, but look, let, let's, let's tell it. Um, what's the biggest cause of death for men in their 40s? Someone said heart attack. Any other takers? Suicide. Biggest cause of death for men in their 40s is suicide. It's only in your late 50s that heart attacks and cancer overtake. Okay? That is the most scary statistic, especially if you're a bloke in their 40s. Okay? But it's true. It's absolutely true. And, and um, frankly, you won't find in the professional services anybody who is not quite closely personally affected by that issue. Why do I, why do I bring that up in a diversity conversation? Um, because the number one um, solution to mental health, stress, well-being in the workplace um, is being able to make your business work for people's lives. Okay? In big business, that's all about flexible working, dynamic working, as we call it. But, but making your business fit around your life. Again, as entrepreneurs, let, make sure your life is not your business, that your business fits around your life, because that is the only sustainable way. And the same will be true you know, of the people you try and bring into your business. Um, it's fascinating, uh, the, the, the journey that, that Barclays and every other very large firm has gone through with learning how to, uh, I know this is a very crude simplification, but learning how to manage millennials and learn you know, what actually is the, is the approach and the types of projects and the feedback mechanisms and all the rest of it that land with people. If you, that's diversity in action as well. You say it's not just gender, uh, it's not just sexuality. There's a, okay, people have different... I respond differently to different situations, and you have to understand that. So I think everybody, whether you're a startup business or a very large business, you have to really understand that basic principle of, of bringing the right people in and supporting them, whatever their background. Thank you very much. Um, very uh, touching. 
I, I really appreciate the, uh, the honesty. Um, question about uh, maybe uh, Pride. So um, you have read the news about Prowler this morning. About? Prowler. So uh, Prowler were born in your Eagle Labs in Cambridge. Right. And uh, this morning they, they announced their Series B, 20 million US dollars at 100 million US dollars valuation. So you obviously hadn't heard about Prowler. Um, I have been, as you know, I've been on stage I think three times today. So no, no. <laughs> it's been one of those days. That's well, great. So you must feel proud. I mean, uh, the Eagle Labs were born under, you know, since you shifted yeah. from COO to CEO, it's uh, part of your vision. Um, is this what you envisage? You know, I know it's also real estate and lease uh, management, but it it's was. also vision. It's not anymore. It was, that's how it started. So Eagle Labs are fascinating, right? Genuinely, the way it started was um, uh, we got a bunch of bank branches that are on 50-year leases and nobody's going into them to do banking anymore. What will we do with them? So we basically put some IKEA furniture and some 3D printers in them and, and turned, created these Eagle Lab concepts and invited people to come in and use them as co-working spaces. Um, Cambridge was one of the first. Uh, we did a lot of time, for example, we, we, we kicked off um, uh, kids coding. We did in there a lot, a lot of kind of um, sort of say 3D printing fabrication type training, a lot of work with schools. And, and then over time, it's, it's evolved as um, we've realized that actually creating an ecosystem for entrepreneurs yeah, is incredibly important. And once you step out of uh, you know, London or some of the major cities, the availability for shared working space remains quite challenging. Right? You know, there, there, are, there are not WeWorks in every major city in the UK. Um, so now, actually, uh, we've, gone, we've gone through a journey where we said, okay, for example, uh, in Reading, we partner with a university uh, and we put an Eagle Lab in their real estate, nothing to do with a branch. And we've even now got to the point where um, in the South Coast, one of the local authorities in the South Coast is actually giving up one of their old municipal buildings and is paying Barclays to run an incubation hub for them. So it's, it's completely spun up. Um, and it is, we're incredibly proud of, 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 of what it's achieved. Um, and it's, it's, you know, we think it's one of the biggest of, the, of its type in run, running in the UK. But it's, but say what strikes me is, is, the, is the real variety of why people are there. Um, I was in Brighton recently and saw the lab and, and there was a guy and I said, another one, I said, well, why are you here? And he said, um, he said, it is this network. He said, let me tell you, he said, um, I don't have a website right now. I don't need one. You know, but I know that in about three months I'm going to need uh, to have a website. He's going to build it for me. Now he was running a sports betting website, no, um, team organisation. So if you're running a, uh, a football, uh, you're running a football league or something, working out who's going to play and what team and all the rest of it. This is brilliant. Basically, an app that you could organise. You know, ten under fifteen football teams on an app. So he was a really, really good web designer and app designer, and he was going to. It's like he said, "Oh yeah," and at some point I'm going to need to actually get all my data in a database. They're going to do that, you know. And and it was this ecosystem, this convening power of Barclays pulling these folks together. That for me, and and then, then the lesson that we had was uh, actually it's, stage one is the convening power within the lab, within the community. Uh, the next stage that we then did um, was land dedicated high growth and entrepreneur relationship managers working with everybody in those labs who then connect up themselves and then connect up into the investment bank and the corporate bank. Um, so hence my story about you know we someone turns around and says or oh, it'd be you know what we'd really really like is to see if you know John Lewis would be interested in you know stocking stocking you know this product we go do you want to meet John Lewis because we can do that 
you know? <laughs> so, so you know, that's a huge convening power that we've got to deploy. And I say, frankly, from a Barclays perspective, you'll forgive one short advertorial. Um, most of the other banks are pulling back their relationship managers. Uh, if you're with Lloyds or HSBC, you don't get a relationship manager now until you hit two or three million pounds of turnover. Uh, at Barclays, we give you a relationship manager at 400,000 pounds of turnover or much earlier if we see you growing. Um, and that for me is, whilst I am a massively tech-savvy fan of our digital apps and migrating as much as we can, I am also a huge fan of relationship management. So, so the, 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 the real strategy in, in business banking for me is to be a, a, you know, the best digital bank in the UK, but also the best relationship bank in the UK, uh, and do both. Thank you. I think I'm going to open it up to the um, public for questions. Do we have questions in the audience? Okay. Let's start with the lady down here. Um, I'd like to put a scenario in front of you. Um, you're looking at a business plan and you realize that people have put very little money and actually disregarded the marketing side of the business. How do you feel about it and what do you recommend? They have, so the individual has put in very little money of them. I see that a lot, so that's why I want to know what you feel, feel about. Okay, so, so not putting in money, I try very carefully not to judge on that because you don't know individuals' financial circumstances. So there will be some people who can put in money, right? There will be some people who can't. And, and so um, I think, first of all, that is not a negative sign, the fact that you've not got your own money in. Um, there was quite, I'm going to do a slight detour on a very funny anecdote, although um, there, was a, um, there was a celebrity who had a, um, I'm just trying to make sure I'm going to tell this story and not get into trouble, um, and they had a business basically, a celebrity had a business, and uh, the business fell over, and they did an interview uh, in the media uh, where they basically um, criticised their bank and said, you know, that horrible bank, basically, you know, they even wanted me to, to put my house up as, as security before they would lend me the money for the business. And of course I refused to do that. And it was very funny, in the comment section in, in, underneath it was, was a, a wonderful comment that says, it appears that he took the same view of the probability of success of his business as the bank did. <laughs> so, so, look, if we know you can put in money and you're choosing not to, that's not a good thing. But if you're a startup, right, then honestly, that, that doesn't matter. Now, marketing. Again, it's horses for courses, right? Some, so, for some businesses, marketing is everything. And, and again, we tend to think, instinctively, if you're in this sector, you tend to think about marketing and B2C. Most businesses in the UK do not sell to consumers. Marketing is not their thing. Most businesses in the UK actually sell to other businesses. And that either requires very, very focused marketing, or more likely, it requires really strong networking. Yeah? So, so there is a different argument there. So yes, if there's somebody who's got the money, and they are a consumer-facing business, and they're not putting the money in, they're not focusing on marketing, that, that doesn't look right. But that's a very specific scenario versus the average business, I would say. Is that, is that a fair answer? Feel free to challenge back. Yeah? Thank you. There was a question 
Thank you so much. That was um, fascinating. Um, I'm a student here, and I'm also um, a business development director for uh, an African fintech startup. Um, and so my question was exactly around what you said about reflecting the communities um, that you work on. So our management team are out here in London, but we have half of our development team based in Lagos so that we can be close to the, yeah. the tax problem we're trying to solve. Um, but of course, that kind of causes inefficiencies when you're a year old. Um, and we've also finished our MVP, um, and I'm responsible for pitching and fundraise, and I'm trying to straddle raising from London and Cambridge, but also potentially raising from African-based investors. And that, again, can be inefficient based on trying to pitch to two different kind of audiences. So I was just wondering, again, on the geography point, um, if you had any pointers around that. Thank you. Well, first of all, sounds like fantastic business. Really, really interesting. Um, Honestly, you know more about it than I do, okay? I know that's not helpful. You've already identified, so first of all, I, I, I have the, the, um, the first test of any good business or any, frankly, any problem, that you understand your problem, right? You've just articulated your problem beautifully, right? You know what your problem is. Um, what the answers are, I think that comes back to that question of, networking and where are you based because I don't know the so I don't know what's the best tools you know that help you manage you know a business that's split like yours I don't know that somebody will in this room you know who's doing something similar at a fintech conference right I was I was so I was at the the fintech world forum this morning in London somebody there would have known the answer to that right so it's really about how you find those folks who can who who, who can help you um, I think the other thing I would say is, um, you know, so you're looking, so this is an interesting one that we're looking at, so it's quite interesting actually. So you're looking there, you're really looking for investors who are interested in investing in tech businesses in Africa. Okay. Um, someone has that list. Okay. We might, by the way, so I'm more than happy to put you in touch with, the, uh, with our team who, who, who have, a, you know, have our own sort of uh, Rolodex of, of VC funds and know, that, I mean, that real life story of a VC fund coming over and saying, we don't want to do any more tech businesses, can you introduce us to someone who's doing advanced manufacturing and things like that, right? Uh, we might have in that, someone will have in their Rolodex, we know these businesses, we know this VC who's interested in investing in African tech startups. They will exist. Uh, now, you'll have your own links in, but yeah, so find, that's a networking, come back to the point earlier on, that's not a marketing point, that's a networking point. So just to uh, complement what um, uh, Ian just said, there was a Cambridge um, uh, in Africa conference here at the judge last week, I don't know if you attended, but that would have been a good um, source of uh, networking. Um, Ian mentioned Pitchett Palace earlier on, and Pitchett Palace yeah. does a Pitchett Palace Africa, and uh, that's mainly in partnership with the Royal Academy of Engineering. So I highly recommend you get in touch with the Royal Academy of Engineering and uh, contact the Pitchett Palace uh, team um, and get invited to the next Pitchett Palace Africa. So yeah. There was a question here. It slightly touches up on the same point. You, you talk about the three rings, the individual, the company, and the macro. Uh, is there any conflict between the rings that you see? That suppose you take the same person, same business, and have it in Japan or Africa, uh, because these ecosystems or the broader things work or have higher bearing, does it affect on your decisions to invest in certain conditions, or they have no bearing as such? I, I think it's hard to generalise on that, that honestly. Um, it's a, 
with, with the complexity, I mean, everyone talks about the world becoming more complex, right? But with that also becomes there's much fewer gray areas or empty white space than there were before. So, you know, you're in a particular geography and it's much harder to get X done, right? To, to, to use the example we've just had, right? Um, I don't know who the, the, the tech you know, for, uh, investors are for Africa. I know they will exist, right? So, you know, I think if you are... So I don't think that any of those rings really feel massively different depending on your geography or on your sector. Some will apply more, some will apply less, but it's also a time issue. So I, I, I'm not sure, you know, I mean, I spend time, uh, you know, in our, with our India folks where, where we, you know, you start off, like, like most big organizations, you know, we start off landing there a, some very sort of basic call center functionality. Before you know it, you know, we're running some of our highest, most complex tech development there, stuff that we can spin out into, you know, in, into standalone businesses, um, which I think three years ago, I don't think we even thought about, right? But again, cloud, APIs, they suddenly allow this stuff to be spun out, built up and spun out far more quickly. So, so I think even the story I tell you now would be a different story in a year's time. There's a question up there, and then a question up down here. Uh, thank you for your talk. Uh, it was it was very engaging. Um, I have a question about um, like when a, when a team starts to scale and you start getting out of 10, 20 people in it, and especially if you have someone who's in charge who's maybe technical, not really used to leading a team. What sort of techniques or maybe even tools exist to keep a like a, a check on the pulse of the uh, the well-being of your employees, make sure there aren't any fights breaking out, how to keep the drama in check? Like uh, it's a great question, um, and it's funny actually. People think of a um, you know Barclays as a big organization actually, and so I am. So I spend a lot of time talking about this because actually, whilst we are a, on aggregate a very large organization, my particular world basically consists of about 50 teams of 20 people. You know, there is literally 20 people in Histon looking after Cambridge. There's 20 people, you know, in Birmingham looking after Birmingham. So I have, I have that problem everywhere. Um, it's all about the, the leadership on the ground, okay? And, and the question I think that, that, that you have to ask yourself is, am I the leadership presence? Okay, so if you're there and you've got that first group of 10 or 20 people, are you managing what they are doing or are you actually leading them? Are you engaging with them? Um, and if you're not, and that may not be what you want to do, because you might want to spend more time building, it's actually about finding the person who will. So I would argue it's less about the tools. I mean, there's some very basic tools. I mentioned them in the story I, I gave about the, my favorite female entrepreneur. But, but you know, the basic tools of, okay, communication, basic, basic tools about, okay, when are we having huddles? Let's talk to each other, how do we bring together? That's, those, that's the basics, that's like the health and safety. After that, it's then, it's about personality, right? It's about actually saying, okay, so in that, even within all that context, will you know that someone's got a problem at home that is affecting their work, okay? And if the answer is no, you wouldn't, then that's not really about processes, that's about personalities. Have you created a culture where everybody in your organization is willing to knock on your door and say, say I've got a problem, right? So, so, I, so again, uh, scale organization, right? But I have all my 300 leaders who have more than three people working for them. 
that's the message I give them. It doesn't matter damn what I do. I can do all the town halls and stuff I like. The actual experience of colleagues on the ground is driven by their immediate line manager. And are they creating a culture that means I am willing to, you know, say, hey, can I grab you for a minute? I've got a problem. So that would, be the, that would be the mental test. If I was in that position for the first time, 10, 20 people, the mental test I would ask myself all the time is, have I created a culture where anybody in this team um, would come and see me or come and see somebody who would come and see me and say, I've got a problem? And maybe that's a problem with the work they're doing. They've just discovered a bug in the code. Or is that a problem at home? Right? You need to make sure they're willing to have that conversation. And bluntly, I think you can look at some you know, recently sort of well-publicized examples of businesses that have grown fast but have not grown a culture that befits the scale and the number of people that they have. And that's causing them problems straight away. So start that culture early. That would be my advice. Again, Chris Maffidan, I, I just wanted you to give tips on how to recruit very, very experienced non-executive to serve on your team, because that can be very, very torturous. We have something that's going on now. We've had to change um, middle management several times. We, we know that what we're working on is great, but we haven't been able to get there. And just as a side note, why do you think uh, diversity gives so much profit? Is, is there any profitability in having a diverse uh, workforse? So, so first of all, was it, was it on, on NEDS or on the management team? On your board or on your management team? On, 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 on the board. On the board, okay. So um, I, I have an interesting perspective on this now because for the first time I have a board for Barclays in the UK. So previously we had a group board which is a you know, 20,000 foot. Now we've got a board for Barclays in the UK who are far more focused and I'm feeling the love much more than, 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 I, than I was before. And, and now I'm truly starting to understand how important and useful having an engaged board can be. So, so first of all, you're right to think about it because it's, it is, that board, if they're doing their job properly, can be, can be incredibly powerful. Um, I, sometimes people ask me about mentors, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not, I'm not creating equivalence between mentors and, and, and boards, but hold me, hold me with it for a second. And quite often I get asked to mentor people, relatively junior people in the organisation might come along and say, Ian, can I be your mentor? And, and I always say no. And I always feel mean when I say it. Um, but I say no because I say, look, uh, you know, you're an AVP, you know, or, you know let's just imagine there's 10 grades, okay, and just imagine I'm a grade 7 or something. You know, you're a grade 3. Your big challenge is how do you move from grade 3 to grade 4, okay? I moved from grade 3 to grade 4 16 years ago. That's not because that's not I'm clever, that's because I'm old, okay? <laughs> And the challenges that I went through moving from grade three to grade four are not the same as you're going to go through. So what you need to find is someone who got promoted from grade three to grade four last year, or maybe two years ago, right? Because they can relate to you and help mentor you. So uh, the reason I tell that story is, you use the words very senior and experienced. Um, I wonder if you're pitching at the right level. And look, Hanani, you, you probably have even stronger view than me on this, with all your experience. There is some benefit in having people who have absolutely gone through and made it. There is also some benefit in having folks who did that more recently and are maybe still working through it. 
right? Um, who can be more, they would be more engaged because they have more sympathy, because they have more understanding, because it's more raw and fresh in their minds versus somebody who did it 10 years ago and is now just in the spirit of giving back. You probably want some of those because they're great for networking and all those good things. But if everybody on your board is super, super senior and experienced, I wonder if that's a board that's going to fully engage and lean down. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious that I've got real experts in the room while I'm saying stuff like that. Does that feel right? So, first of all, on the mentoring side, I agree with you about a billion percent. So, there is uh, some serious research um, by other universities and this university that demonstrate that the benefits of mentoring is... Uh, more effective when it's somebody who's one or two levels away from you. So um, uh, really, uh, to, to the example that Ian was making, grade three to grade four, you know, grab somebody who's been there just um, um, six months ago or a year ago, and somebody who can empathize with you and also can share their more recent experience. And you might open up to them and they may empathize with you more easily. So absolutely. On the uh, board, um, I think that um, a mistake you can make is to get people who are too experienced and they will limit the growth of your business because of their experience. Because um, it's the, they haven't seen it happen before and they think it can't be done mm. because uh, they couldn't do it and they couldn't do it uh, with much more resources than you did. So why would you be able to do it now? So I would also agree with you, uh, Ian. Um, it's good to have a mix, but um, the more senior people are, the more set in their ways, and the more they would like to, it to be done their way rather than uh, your way or the way of your company. So fully agree. And then your, your, your final point on diversity. Look, uh, I, c I can use the extreme example, you know, and it's a genuinely real example uh, of a factory where, where I literally stood on this gantry looking over this production line. Uh, it's an amazing business, massively profitable, manufacturing in the Northwest, stuff that you would assume is only ever made in China, right? And they're making it in the Northwest because they're making it to higher quality and they're making it bespoke. You know, if you want to have a thousand of these things that work like this, you know, they will, they will do it slightly differently for you. Um, but it's still a production line manned entirely by middle-aged blokes. Uh, I mean, well, sorry, elderly middle-aged blokes. I mean, right, these, these folks are, are going to... I mean, and, and I stood on the gantry overlooking at it with the business owner. And the business owner said, this business will be dead in five years unless I can solve this problem. Right. And that was the genesis, I have to say, of my first conversation about that said, you don't have a, you, you don't have a skills problem, you have a long-term diversity problem. So actually, you know, what you, you're not going to solve it tomorrow, right? but what you need to say is, what's your target for this year, what's your target for next year, and for three years, and for four years, where you will increase the diversity of this workforce? Because that, it's only when you've got, let me be blunt, I often talk about diversity in fairly blunt language, you'll bring it home. Until you've got women in the team, you won't get more women in the team. Because otherwise, every woman will come and go, there's only men here, I don't want to work here, goodbye. Okay? So, so you're going to have to do something dramatic to get the first two or three women working on your place. And then, and by the way, if that means you've got to pay them a hell of a lot more than the men, do it. 
Okay? Because otherwise you will be dead. Okay? So you're going to have to do something to bring the first women in that creates that, that change. So that's an extreme example, right? Because that business will die if it does not solve its diversity problem because there is not enough blokes in their 50s who want to work on that line. Okay? Um, but then it gets much broader than that. As I said, I think you think, you know, for me, it's about being able to understand your client. If you can't understand your client, then the person you are selling to, using crude language, then your product will not be successful. If you, if you, unless you're going after, it's funny, I took at this FinTech conference this morning, one of the things I said to them was, if you're only trying to, to produce a banking app that's going to be taken up by millennials, good luck to you, right? Because we can have a dozen of those, you know, and you're all fighting over the same group of people, you aren't going to succeed. You need to start building stuff that works for more than tech-savvy millennials. If you're going to do that, guess what? The people building it won't just have to be tech-savvy millennials because you won't understand what it's like to deliver a banking app for families. Okay? So if you want to succeed, your business has to reflect the community that you are seeking to serve in all of its diversity. We're going to take one final question. Well, actually, two, because... I can, um, go, I can go for as long as you like. Yeah. Don't worry. Thanks. So we'll take two <laughs> questions. Uh, thank you. Very interesting talk. Um, I'm wondering when uh, uh, someone comes and uh, asks for money uh, from banking perspective. So they have the... Um, um, how do you call it? Um, inflow cash. Uh, they show that they can return the money. Do you uh, pay attention to the... Uh, consequences of the business on the society? So, what a question. God. <laughs> it's a great, great question. Uh, and actually, we debated it uh, last week. Um, so, um, so, right now, we have some clear... Uh, and by the way, I d we don't differentiate between lending money to a business or banking a business. If I'm going to do your transactions, I'm kind of already there. Right, lending you money is a is 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 kind of we're already there, right? So just lending money is, I, I, that doesn't solve my ethical or reputational risk, with one exception, which I will come back to. So um, we had this debate last week. Uh, the senior leadership from Barclays in the UK was together, and we had a, uh, we spent some time uh, with Ruth, who is the CEO uh, of Stonewall. Okay, so for those who don't know, Stonewall, the largest LGBT uh, activist organization probably in the world. Um, and we had a debate around how do you decide what's right? Because right now, uh, the general approach that, 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 that most large businesses take is we, we follow this thing called democracy. Okay? Which in other words, if the country has elected uh, a government that supports a particular policy, whether that's about in defence or environment or anything else, then um, it's pretty tough to make a different ethical call. Now, some do. So, for example, there are some banks who say, we will never bank defence companies. Okay? So some banks will say that. Um, that's fine. So they take a stand. They, and then they take a stand and say, we are an ethical bank. That's our whole raison d'etre. We will not do the following three or four things. Okay? Most banks, most organizations don't work like that. Most say, look, we will do, what within, maybe within a couple of exceptions, which I'll touch on, we'll basically follow the view of the, of, of the, of the democratic elected government that we serve. Now, here's a problem. And this was Ruth's line, actually. So I asked this question. I actually almost asked the same question that you said to Ruth. I said, Ruth, at what point is doing that a cop-out, 
right? Am I just, am I just taking the easy route by just saying, if the government says it's legal, I'll do it? Um, and, and I'll tell you what she said, okay? and I'll try not to, to, to misquote her, but um, I'll certainly give the spirit of it. She said, it's okay for now, but in a world where um, politics are becoming more extreme and views are becoming more and more polarised, you may have to take a stand. Okay? So if you are a business um, that has to make those ethical decisions, there is a view that says at some point you may have to go beyond what's legal. Now, I'll give you some real-life examples where we do make a... So to be completely you know, frank, because you asked us a good question on it, lending decisions. Um, we quite often bank um, businesses um, who will export things, um, uh, occasionally things that go bang, um, around the world. Um, we, that's the one example where even if they get an export license to send something that goes bang somewhere, we'll look at it and go, right now do we think it's the right thing to do to finance that trade? And we'll make a decision on that trade. And we have a very strong process that basically says, if you are looking to, to, to do a trade which fits the following criteria, um, come and talk to us about it, we'll think about it, we'll talk to you about it, we'll establish some, some, some precedent and we make a decision. And there may well be some cases where even though what you're doing is legal and it's covered by government export licence, etc., we might actually say, do you know what, we're actually not comfortable doing that. Um, so we do occasionally, but that's probably the one example. It's a really interesting area. I have to say, as somebody responsible for a million businesses, you know, who are doing, you know, how we make that decision when 140,000 businesses every year walk into Barclays and say, please, will you bank us? And, and I have a pretty large team of people um, who will look at them and say, uh, yes, no, we need to think about that one. And it's, a, it's one of the hardest things we do. So there was a question down here. Thank you for your talk. It was a great reminder about uh, what we need besides uh, cash flow to grow the business. Uh, but actually, I have a practical question. How early would you recommend to uh, start the conversation with the bank uh, if to know when we need money exactly? Oh, straight away. Build the relationship. Um, look, I think one of the... Um, one of the challenges now is, is that the banks, most banks have been pulling back these relationship managers, right? So kind of the, 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 the slightly the issue is what does having a conversation mean anymore if you're phoning into a call center, right? That, that's a problem, okay? Uh, as I say, forgive the advertorial, you'll do that less with Barclays than you will do with any other major high street bank. Um, I think it's a, it's, it is a, generally speaking, most banks will look for um, four to six months of, of trading surplus. That's the demonstration that says you're, you're generating cash flow that you can afford to pay back. If you're a startup business, right? You know, so you've come in fresh. You're, first of all, you, you start off by being pre-revenue. That's almost impossible to lend to, right? That's equity now, okay? Then you get to pre-profit. Pre-profit is possible, okay? Under specific circumstances, you know, banks can, can, can say, okay, we'll make a small loan pre-profit based on you know, understanding your business very, very closely. If you're going to do a vanilla lend, right, based on you having demonstrated your, your cash flow capabilities, that will generally be available for maybe six months. Now, other fintech lenders may take a different view. 
Okay, it's, a, it's a, one of the great things about the uh, the market in the UK right now is there are fintech lenders popping up all over the place who have very different sometimes sort of risk appetite pricing, you know, to what a high street bank would have. That's good. That's good. It's good for competition. I will only say that um, just just because somebody will lend to you doesn't necessarily mean it's the right idea. Okay. You know, a good temperature check is to ask a bank, a boring old high street bank. Uh, you, can, you can call that defensiveness and plug in my own book if you like. Um, but it's not a bad temperature check to check if your bank will lend to you. If they won't lend to you but somebody else will and you want to go for it, go for it. Do it with your eyes wide open. Because generally speaking, the banker said no because they're not sure you're ready to be able to pay it back. Others may, others may take a different view. So it's just a note of caution when you see that. Just a segue to this question. Uh, do we have any bankers that are non-Barclays bankers in the room? No. I know we've got two Barclays bankers. Would you like to uh, wave so that everybody else can identify you? One? Only one? Okay. So if you have any question about uh, borrowing, lending, um, banking, do you want to wave again? Come and harass him. I, <laughs> Come if and you want to grab him. Mike and correct me, okay, just to thoroughly embarrass me, that would be great. Okay. Whoa! <laughs> Great. So there was a question at the back, and then we'll take a last question here. Okay. Um, or maybe we'll take. No. Hi. Thanks a lot for your time. Uh, what I was thinking is, okay, so the, there's like an SME. You've you've got the money, and suddenly the company's growing like really quickly. How can the processes be sustained, and how can you sustain this growth? and not completely mess up because the way the company will work is completely different when it's small to when it's actually big. I mean, look, that is, that is the scale-up challenge. That's what the scale-up program um, you know, is for, um, to, to help people on that journey. So the first thing is recognize when you're hitting that problem. So there is this, as I say, I, I, I use this phrase about you know, getting your head out of the business, or that's stepping back and taking perspective. The first, the first problem is making sure you recognize when that is happening. Because okay? folks often don't recognize it. You know, they literally go, I've just woken up and I've now got 100 people. And, and I've done absolutely nothing about pensions and health and safety and, and all those things, right? So recognize that it is happening and, and starting the preparation, okay? Skills audit, okay? So now what do I need to do? What do I need to have in my leadership team to, to, to manage this, this piece? And that really honest And that's where actually the, the question about the board should come into play, right? Whether it's a formal board, whether it's your advisory board, somebody's got to sit there going, how, how many people have you got now? Blimey, okay. Um, are you, you going to go on any kind of management training? That's probably quite rude if someone said that to you. you know, go, go, go. But you know what I mean. It's, at some point, you know, get, get, if you've got that advisory board around you, they'll be, they'll be, they'll be nudging you in that direction to say, hey, hey, you need to think about it. And um, you know, I'm, I'm on the board of a, um, uh, of, of a charity, and we actually had a board meeting today just before coming up. And one of the most useful things that we have now in that charity is, is a risk matrix. Um, and it's, it's the most simple thing um, that it just simply says, and again, if this was Barclays, it would come in a ring binder, okay? Uh, but it's one page of A4. And all it says down the left-hand side is it describes the risks. And then it says, the next column is, what's the odds on this happening? Okay, five, it's definitely going to happen. One, it's unlikely. Okay. 
The next column is, if it happens, how serious is it for us? And the next column multiplies those two numbers together. And then the next column, final column, says what are the mitigating actions that are already in place and that needs to happen. Okay? It's very, very simple. I'm sure you teach something incredibly like that somewhere, you know, for... for not to my knowledge. Well, okay, we should, look, we should absolutely look at that because, because it is one of those fundamental disciplines that basically says what could go wrong. Uh, you know, let me come back to something else in a second. So, so I think that's a pretty good discipline. If I was to give one piece of advice to say, as you're starting off, you know, one piece of, if you like, big company bureaucracy that you might want to put in is that, that risk matrix. Because then it makes you think, right? So on the charity arm that I'm with, the risk matrix says things like, we lose a key person. Right? So you, it might be, I lose a, a key specialist, I lose a key, key developer or something, because you're only three of you. If that person goes, what are you going to do? Write it down, now you've got to think about it. Next thing might be, you know, um, you know we have a, an HR breach. Okay? I mean, one of, the, one of the most seminal moments in any business that's scaling up life is the first time they get an uh, employee grievance. You know, I've been bullied, I want to take you to court. I mean, that's a seminal moment in every business. And that's, by the way, when they, that's, that's when I like having relationship managers, because we're like the first people they call going, do you know any good solicitors that we can help? Da, 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 da. Right? So you, but if you've thought about all those risks in advance, you've thought about how you're going to structure your business to, 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 um, to, to, to manage it. Right? It's really, so that would be one way I would kind of do it. And then if you're doing that, you'll see when you start hitting that J-curve and go, whoa, 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 my risks have suddenly changed. Because on day one, you won't have those risks, a bunch of risks. And then suddenly, when you start scaling, that risk matrix will suddenly go, oh, this is getting really big now. So I'm, I'm sorry. I've been told that I've been too generous with the questions and that the drinks await. So um, we will. You, Ian will stay for the networking for so it, yeah. you can ask the question. I would like you. I would like you. So the first is a description of the risk. Next one is, what's the chance of it happening? One to five. Next column is, how serious is it if it does happen? One to five. Where, where the higher number is always the worst one. Okay, then you multiply those two numbers together. That allows you to stack rank what your risks are. Okay, and then the, th then the final column is, what's the, what's the mitigating actions I've already got in place and what's the ones I've still got to do? So, bluntly, in the board meeting I've just been at, new risks were identified, something happened, and there were some new actions now that got added to the we now need to take list. Okay, now I'd like to get a little bit of uh, audience interaction. Can you please thank Ian really warmly, please? Thank you.